So we're together here for Week in Review. Bill Radke here, and uh, we got a little bit of a stutter start because I wasn't able to hear my guests, so I'm going to check back in and uh, see if I can hear them now. Let's start with Jane C. Who? Jane, can you hear me? I can. Great I to be here. I hear you. Thanks for being here. Freelance journalist Jane Who. Also, we've got former publisher of the Washington State Wire, DJ Wilson. DJ, thanks for coming on. Yeah, you bet, Bill. And uh, Joni Balter just popped off the screen, but I'm sure she's coming right back. Uh, by the way, uh, by screen, I mean we are live streaming the show. So, so you can watch the fun uh, at, on YouTube or on Facebook, and you just search KUOW.org, and, uh, and you'll find us. Okay, so I'm, I'm sure Joni is uh, on her way. Let me start the show with the topic of politics, because this was the final week for candidates to file for November's ballot. And I'm sure we've all heard about the red wave predicted to come ashore in this fall's elections. Would that red tide, red wave, reach as far as blue Washington state? And DJ, I know you follow such things. And do you think either of our state chambers is about to go majority Republican? I think there's a real uh, opportunity for Republicans, for sure. I think the uh, the context for history buffs is that these midterm elections generally go against the incumbent in the presidential office, meaning Joe Biden being in the White House is good for Republicans. Only three times since 1930, 1934 has the, the presidential party uh, pick up seats in Congress. That does sort of trickle down to the legislative level. It creates kind of what you think of as the air war or the cable news conversation about the parties. And then it's a question of who the candidates are on the ground. The other key thing that's different this year is that we've just redrawn all of the maps. And so the... the you should explain to, to listeners what redrawing the maps are. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, we redistrict our, our 49 legislative seats every 10 years. So that process has just happened. And based on constitutional law and state law, the way we draw those maps has to create as even a playing field as possible. So they've just been rebalanced, which is generally better for Republicans. Mm. And I, I think there are a couple of key districts where you know Republicans have to pick up eight seats to tie in the House. Um, and you know it's going to be pretty close. I think the key questions are whether they pick up seats out in like the Issaquah area and the 5th, uh, whether the kind of federal way area in the 30th ends up going back towards Republicans. Open questions there. Uh, you got 47th, 44th other districts as well. So uh, it's worth watching because it, it it's going to be a good year for Republicans nationally. I think it'll be good here as well. I know Joni, Joni is also a big politics follower, and I'm sure Joni will have a lot to say when she rejoins us. Um, Jane, this is less your beat. Any uh, questions or information to share on uh, on local politics and what's might what might happen this fall. Yeah, as a science reporter, I don't follow local politics yeah. or state politics super closely. So I am curious if that redistricting affects Seattleites. I'm sure some listeners might have that question as well. Yeah, it's it, it's interesting, you know, um, these lines have to be drawn to be exactly the same amount of population in every district within just a few uh, bits. So the 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 city of Seattle has gained people. Um, King County has gained people since the last census ten years ago, uh, and that actually means the districts get a little smaller. Uh, and so 
um, it, it's actually, it allows, it has created kind of this blue wall for Democrats in the legislature where so many people live in Seattle and King County that they almost can mitigate any Republican wave um, from the other parts of the state. There's a little blue island out in Spokane. There's a little blue island down in uh, Vancouver. Uh, and then up in Bellingham, there's a little blue island and so on and so forth. But it's really hard for Republicans because in Seattle, uh, the, the maps just get smaller. And so it's really then becomes a question of who's more progressive uh, in a lot of those primaries. Joni, I'm not sure whether you've been able to listen to the discussion so far. Joni Balter's uh, still muted, but at least on the uh, back on the show with us. And Joni, we talked a little bit about uh, this uh, red wave uh, question and... I think uh, maybe you see things a little differently. Joni, if you'll unmute yourself, uh, maybe can Joni hear me? Can you hear me, Joni? I Yay. can hear you, Excellent. and I unmuted myself. Okay, politics. But I went to a very dark place down a dark hole <laughs> yeah. trying to fix that. Wow, congratulations. <laughs> um, well done. What's the question? Uh, well, we were just starting to talk, and, and we'll have more to say here uh, on, on some of these political issues. Uh, but I started asking DJ what the odds are of Republicans in this supposed red wave. What are the odds of Republicans taking a majority in Washington state of all places in either of the houses? Um, you know, they're going to Republicans are likely to pick up a few seats in the legislature. They're probably unlikely to take over either chamber is what I would say. You know, each each party chair can point to a few seats that are favorable for them for pickup. But, you know, there's there are some, you know, very big numbers that have to be overcome in that regard. Mm -hmm. So I think it's um, seven seats um, lead in the Senate, 16 in the House. That's pretty tough. Uh, even though you only have to have half of that, that's pretty tough to overcome. Big, uh, you know, mm -hmm. it, I'll remind you of 2010. There was a, a pretty significant Republican tide that year. And it was a year that Senator Patty Murray was running against Dino Rossi. And the national Republican tide absolutely crested <laughs> at the Cascade Passes, let's say, because what happened then was Patty Murray, I mean, it wasn't a commanding lead, but she won that year and, and people were dropping off all over the place. So, you know, Western Washington is, is pretty democratic and it has all the numbers and it's increased in the numbers that it has because of so much population growth. Well, let's talk about a congressional district that's both in western Washington and central Washington. We're talking about the the swing district of the 8th, which is now a Democrat, Kim Schreier, uh, challenger Reagan Dunn. Any, what, what should listeners know? Again, I, I'm asking here on Week in Review because this was... This was uh, filing day. This was the final week for candidates to file for November's ballot. So now we've got some information. Uh, I'm curious, uh, DJ, 8th District, what should we expect? I think the 8th District is really uh, a huge opportunity for Republicans to pick up. Uh, there was a poll released by uh, or a, a, a poll for the DCCC, which is the campaign arm of congressional Democrats that had a generic Republican in the 8th Congressional District at 47% and a generic Democrat down at 39%. That eight point spread is a really big deal. And, Can I ask uh, you when, when that was? Yeah, it, it, this was reported by uh, Punchbowl News and I think that they had this out Monday. That I think Okay, that, so, so recent enough. That's pre I'm, pretty I'm recent. Yeah, okay. And so I think that that creates real problems for incumbent Kim Schreier. The, uh, the district changes a little bit as well. I think it uh, actually gets 
um, in some ways better for Democrats, but it's still going to be pretty tight. I think interesting and worth noting, Reagan Dunn is running, but there are a bunch of other Republicans also running. And That's true. Jesse Jensen ran and and got through the primary and almost beat Kim Schreier last year. He's he's actually out fundraised uh, Reagan Dunn pretty considerably. Uh, Matt Larkin is also in that race who lost uh, Jensen last year or two years ago, rather. So there's a three-way race. We'll see how it kind of plays out. And then in the fall, it, you know, that's um, that the crest that happened, uh, as Jenny said, 2010, I think, I think that's going to be a, an open question here for the fall. Well, if you had asked me a month ago, who wins this seat, I would say easy Reagan Dunn, high Republican tide, big name familiarity. He's a moderate R in a, in a purple district, but you know, the abortion rights ruling that's expected is one factor. And also Reagan Dunn since, and I don't know if it's since the, the, the poll was in the field, um, took a took an unfortunate, I think sort of sad uh, change of position on choice. You know, all his career, he has been pro-choice, trying to be very much like his mom, who um, held the 8th district seat for a long time. And her position was, um, you know, pro-choice, but no federal funding. But it, what's sad to me is that in this era, a moderate Republican like Reagan Dunn has to um, adapt to the uh, the sort of politics of the day. And, you know, there's another problem here. So it's, there's the issue itself, which is very powerful in that district. I would guess it's something like 65, 70% pro-choice with some specifications. But the other thing is the authenticity issue. I, I don't know if you've been following, but I've been following all week long the uh, Pennsylvania Senate race with this um, candidate, John Fetterman. I'm interested in him because my dad is from the town he was mayor of, but I'm also interested in just this sort of folksy, um, authentic, the guy wears um, a hoodie everywhere and these shorts, even in like, you, there's pictures of him in the snow with the shorts on. It's kind of funny. And he goes to like the fanciest events, you know, kind of dressed. But anyway, so Reagan Dunn being um, a chameleon on this issue for everybody to see is not going to help on the authenticity part of this. Mm. Jane, I want to I want to bring you in because um, we're now we've been talking about this abortion issue. When the draft Supreme Court ruling on Roe versus Wade wa, and Casey was leaked, our state attorney general Bob Ferguson quickly reminded us what a blue state Washington is. Washingtonians' fundamental right to access safe and legal abortion is not in jeopardy from this opinion. And you've written, Jane, about one way in which it's not that simple. Um, why would Washington not necessarily be a safe haven when it comes to abortion rights? I think even if Washington itself is a safe haven, we don't exist in a vacuum. Clearly, mm. we're going to be affected by what happens in nearby states and federally. Um, so I've seen some reports saying that because of folks, um, Idaho and Montana are expected to um, prohibit abortions um, and that as a result, Washington could see a 385 percent increase in folks seeking abortions in the state. And you can imagine that that could lead to longer wait times or just less access for people who live here, but also people who are traveling here. Um, I also reported a piece for Slate um, last week 
about um, how digital privacy might play into this. Um, and in talking with some of the experts that have been following um, how people have been criminalized for having abortions or even for having something happen in the midst of their pregnancy, um, it seems like even if Washington serves as a safe haven, um, there are states that are trying to pass laws that would essentially criminalize aiding and abetting anyone who's seeking an abortion as well. Um, so that can be the actual providers, that could be folks who help these people travel between states, could even be insurance agencies that are covering this as part of their work. So um, even if Washington uh, is committed to, to remaining a safe haven, that does not mean that um, you know everything will remain the same. Particularly, Jane, you wrote about these apps, um, tracking apps, menstrual tracking apps, sexual health apps. Will you summarize what that issue is? Yeah. Um, so in the days after the um, potential ruling was leaked, um, a lot of people were saying, especially on social media, advising people to delete any apps that people use to track their menstrual cycle. Um, this also extends to apps that people might use to track their pregnancy. So for instance, I have several friends who have used apps to um, try and figure out when they're ovulating, um, if they're trying to get pregnant. Um, you can upload a lot of information onto these apps about how you're feeling, um, what's coming out of your body. I don't need to get uh, into it completely on over the <laughs> air here. Um, but it asks a lot of really intimate things. And people often use these apps to just track um, any trends that they see over the course of their cycle. And um, so folks were saying on social media that this information could be used against people in some way if they were prosecuted for having an abortion or having any kind of pregnancy related issue. Um, so uh, there are a couple of different ways this could happen. Um, one is if someone is actually prosecuted and um, some the the court wants to pull evidence um, that they knew that they were pregnant um, or what their habits were during their pregnancy, if there was were any indications that there are any issues with that pregnancy. Um, the other is that a lot of these apps are selling their data to third party um, third party companies who then package that information. And so there's some evidence that um, in other cases that our government has actually bought, uh, data from third party companies um, about other health issues like related to COVID, for instance. Um, and it feels like people are saying that it is quite possible that um, this kind of information could be weaponized. So this is exactly why I don't own a smart speaker. A bunch of Russian spies, as far as I'm concerned, on the other end of it. Mm -hmm. By the time it gets sold and resold, I mean, you really cannot control it. So I can see why people would be wigged out um, at the thought that some of this information is uploaded. And, you know, it's getting scary out there. I mean, there's a lot of overreaching going on now. If you notice this week, what Oklahoma lawmakers passed, they passed a bill that um, bans abortions from the moment of fertilization. Uh, that's, that that beats, uh, beats out in vitro fertilization. And then I read this morning that a Michigan State Senate candidate was talking about banning birth control. I mean, so nobody told me, but there's clearly a contest to see how, you know, over how much we can overreach on this. And I think, you know, people, this, this will impact the political landscape as well, because it's like the law of physics or something, action, reaction, you know, 
if if all these states are trying to sort of leapfrog, no, we're more we're more aggressive than you are, more aggressive than every other state. I think at a certain point there there will be pushback and it will be in certain close races in purple districts like the eighth. Before we take a break, uh, haven't heard from you in a little bit, DJ. Is there anything else you wanted to say about the topic you started us off on? We're talking about uh, politics, and of course, abortion comes into that, and and all the and, and data privacy. Uh, anything else to add before we take a break on Week in Review? Yeah, just a couple of brief points. One, I don't know in Washington State whether abortion is going to really motivate people to change their votes or to go to the poll in an off year when they wouldn't otherwise have. I just, I'm not, I don't, I don't see it uh, on the left, on the right. It's a, a mobilizing issue. Meaning but, you, DJ, you don't see it in, in uh, voter survey polls or in what way? Yeah. I, I, in, in terms of uh, uh, polling, I haven't seen any polling that says people are going to turn yeah. out to vote where they were not planning to vote previously mm-hmm. because of the abortion ruling. We'll see. There's still a lot of time, but but I would say the left can't count its chickens there yet. The other thing I'd say is uh, the key piece, the qualifier in the attorney general's uh, clip that you played, Bill, is that it's in this opinion. This opinion is not yet the majority opinion. And we don't know what that will be until June when that majority opinion is released. And so it could be a different opinion. It could get to things like um, contraception it could and and uh, Griswold versus Connecticut, which is the central central ruling on privacy is Griswold versus Connecticut. And that is about a doctor's ability to prescribe contraception. So this ruling could be set, could set the stage for a number of more aggressive cases to knock down what we think are basic rights to privacy. So I don't think that um, that abortion is the number one issue. I think the economy inflation are far more impactful. But I think that it's it's not true that it won't energize women and younger voters. It is going to get them going. In fact, I read a piece um, in the Cook Political Report by Amy Walter talking about how uh, the abortion issue narrows the enthusiasm gap for the simple reason it drives more Democrats and sort of uh, brings down the enthusiasm of some of the sort of independents who might be voting Republican. I, I do think there's um, there will be select places where this will potentially have an impact. But I like, frankly, Issaquah and that sort of uh, foothill, eastern East King County place, women who might have voted Republican in the past might vote uh, Democratic for Kim Schreier. But I I think we'll we'll have to see how that plays out at the legislative level, if at all. But didn't you say that you thought it um, solidifies the candidacy of Patty Murray? I do think, yeah, Patty Murray. Would it be for the same reason? Yeah, I just think that um, I think Patty Murray's uh, weakness is, to the extent that she has some, which she does not have many. Frankly, I think she's very strong in the state, uh, very well regarded, should be reelected pretty easily. The, the only weakness she has is Warren Magnuson's 1980 weakness, which is she's been around a long time. And so if you wanted to like vote Republican in the Senate because you were tired of voting for Patty Murray, as we've been doing since 1992, uh, this will 
solidify that support. So she still probably wins with over 60%. I would, I would bet 58, uh, 60%. Okay, but it's this other down ballot mm-hmm. questions that linger. Let's take a little break now and we can review. I did ask some members of the KOW Community Feedback Club for what's, what's a voting issue that didn't used to be decisive for you, but it is now. And I'll say some more about uh, some of the answers a little bit later in the show, but I saw a cluster of answers, a couple of anonymous people, one saying affordable quality housing. Homes in Seattle are nearing a million dollars on average in lower end neighborhoods. Another says we'll not vote for any candidate who wants to abolish single family home neighborhoods under the guise of affordability or anti-racism. Lonnie says I'm a Democrat, but will vote for someone who'll try to decrease property taxes. And Sean says I used to assume most candidates had a basic sense of civic duty and intelligence. Now I vote based on how they process and project facts versus QAnon-ish drivel and propaganda. Who knew we would ever have to make that a high priority? To join our Community Feedback Club, just text CLUB to the number 206-926-9955. Text the word CLUB to 206-926-9955. We send out periodic text asking for your feedback or your story ideas. We're going to take a short break and right back with more of Week in Review. My guests today are the former publisher of the Washington State Wire, D.J. Wilson, freelance journalist Jane C. Hu, political analyst and contributing columnist Joni Balter. Thanks for tuning in to The Week in Review. This week, the city of Edmonds banned people from camping in public spaces if shelter space is available within 35 miles because there is no shelter space in the city of Edmonds. If you're offered shelter space and you refuse it, you can be jailed and or fined for camping. If you can't pay, you can do community service. A state representative from the area, Strom Peterson, said the law criminalizes homelessness. The city says you're not criminalizing homelessness if you only jail or fine people when shelter is available. And they say if the shelter can't be used Because of sex, familial or marital status, religious beliefs, disability, or shelter's length of stay restrictions, then the space is not considered to be available. Uh, So let's talk about this, and we'll get into a a big uh, homeless encampment clearing in Seattle in Woodland Park in a moment. But, uh, DJ, you brought this up. Do voters seem to think they are criminalizing homelessness, as this state rep said? I don't. I think we're probably a little bit past that. I think you see evidence in in Bruce Harrell's campaign uh, to cl- sort of, you know, find and su- find shelter and support people who are in a time of crisis that we should, like like our community wants to do. But that if it's uh, persistent uh, and ongoing uh, public encampments that degrade the quality of life for everybody like Woodland Park. You can't go running there. It's maybe not safe sometimes uh, to be alone. You know, that, that, that is a thing I think where people now in the Seattle area want to see commonsensical action. And it sure seems like the city of Edmonds policy is pretty commonsensical. You know, if, if, if somebody's camping and there's shelter available um, you know, Edmonds is not going to let you put up a, a tent on a sidewalk than the way that Seattle has in years past. And I think that's reasonable. You mentioned the issue of not being able to go running in Woodland Park. I was there not long ago. It's a giant park. So uh, there are huge areas of free and open and usable park space. And that's been part of the debate around Woodland Park. What should happen there? Which which public camping is uh, so inhibits the use of that land for other people. 
uh, that it's time to clear it out and, and which public camping should be allowed. The city council member, Seattle City Council member Dan Strauss, said that there were 89 people living in Woodland Park who got referred to tiny house villages, enhanced shelters, or permanent housing. And Woodland Park is our demonstration that when we understand a person's needs and connect them with the shelter and housing that meets these needs, people come inside by the hundreds and refusals are few. Joni Balter, what do you think voters and listeners ought to know about this right now? Well, uh, let me start by saying that um, I believe the general public should have access to parks and, you know, all of the park and and sidewalks. Um, So that's one way to define public space. And so if you're blocking other people from using this space, then then I agree with what the mayor is doing. But, you know, they're doing it differently now. They are doing this sort of preliminary work that is basically required by the the Ninth Circuit in in the Martin uh, versus Boise case. They're trying to arrange shelters so you don't just move the problem around. Um, I have one issue with the um, Edmonds camping ban. It sort of takes the regional out of the regionalism. And you do have other jurisdictions around around the Puget Sound area, like Auburn, Mercer Island, I believe Everett. And so if each of these jurisdictions sort of inoculates themselves, where do these folks go? If you haven't been doing this preliminary work, if you haven't been helping the problem, I, it feels like it needs a regional solution to me because then folks end up on state land and then the state has to call the jurisdiction and say, what are we going to do? So I understand their frustration that's captured in this law, but I think uh, really it would be better if we had a regional approach to this. Yeah, it's convenient to say that uh, Seattle is the problem when you don't have uh, services or shelter yourself and right. and you just send people out of town. Uh, Jane, any uh, information or questions along these lines? Yeah, I mean, I'm really curious to know, I was looking at um, the text of this camping ban, and it says that people can be um, charged if they have the intent to occupy city property. And I'm very curious how you would demonstrate intent and why you would not just say that a person would be charged once they are occupying city property. Mm-hmm. Um, beyond that, I'm also very curious about, I mean, as you mentioned, um, Edmonds does not have shelters of their own. Um, it seems like this rule would apply to shelters within, I think you said 35 miles. Yes. Um, I'm curious, how would you, would you provide transportation for these folks? I mean, yes. that seems like it would be quite difficult if you, um, are houseless and potentially, uh, you know, carless, how would you get to these places? Um, I believe it's a bus ticket. Okay, it's a bus ticket. I, I, I mean, know. I think also um, I've been working on a story related to homelessness um, and have kind of uh, come across many reasons that folks might refuse this kind of shelter. Um, you know, for one, what are you going to do with all of your belongings? Um, some folks might have pets that they are not allowed to bring into shelters. I mean, I know some folks also are still concerned about COVID um, and staying indoors in a shelter with people you don't know in close proximity is not um, appealing to folks. So some of the success in Seattle was was getting people into the tiny houses. That's that's helpful. And I remember when Mercer Island uh, had their own ban, it was pointed out similarly that they don't have um much shelter, if any, and that folks had to somehow get to Bellevue, which would be the nearest shelter. And so, you know, these these communities are staking out exactly what they want to occur in their own community without, in some cases, providing the shelter themselves 
And then just sort of looking at Seattle, like you say, and saying, oh, poor Seattle. We don't want to be like that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I again, I, I mentioned this um topic to the KOW Community Feedback Club, I wanted to know, what are you? What might you vote on this time around this year that maybe you didn't before? And uh, just quickly, Eric wants new, stronger ideas on cleaning up our city. I'm tired of the garbage flying around like tumbleweeds. I'm tired of the shanty tent towns. Annette says, homelessness. I'm so tired of the infighting and money grabbing without any acquired wisdom over the last many years of crisis. And Heidi says, homeless encampments are bad for neighborhoods and for families. Uh, DJ, anything to add here? I mean, I think it. I think we shouldn't kid ourselves. Uh, there are parts of Seattle that are just sad, and they have fallen so far from where our beautiful city has been. And it's not just downtown; it's you know places throughout the city, neighborhoods throughout the city. And we have to. We've been talking about homelessness. It's been an emergency for years now. It's like. You know this ongoing thing. We we want to solve this. No one's got a clear answer. It's going to take a, a a thousand silver bullets, so to speak. But we are creating kind of this what people cynically call as a homeless industrial complex. Meaning, throwing more money at at this generates more jobs, more advocacy for more money. And at some point, we need to stop and say, as consultants to the city of Seattle have tried in in recent years. To stop and say, how how can we do this uh, better? Not maybe that's regional. We're trying a regional approach, and that's two steps forward, one step back in terms of housing and homelessness. But one thing we haven't really seen is the state and the local jurisdictions engage one another in a meaningful way to move these folks in need into Medicaid uh, enrollment, for instance, to make sure that they can get mental health uh, drugs and to to stabilize themselves, so that they can then work towards. Uh, supportive employment uh, place and supportive housing place to keep them stable. So I think the missing thing that I'd say is left is is uh, this state local engagement, and and we shouldn't kid ourselves that uh, this can this is going to be a long term problem and a real real sorrowful challenge for our community. I have two points on that. One is that um, this was a big year for uh, the state stepping up on homelessness. Uh, for many years, Seattle mayors. Uh, local exec- county executives would say, oh my God, we need help from the state. They never provide it. But this year they did because they were so flush probably, but also because of the pressing nature of the issue. And partly because uh, of federal funding. And partly because of federal funding. Thank you so much. The state really puts the money into homelessness and it's just a one day deal, but the mayor tomorrow has his uh, volunteer community cleanup day. You're absolutely right. So many parts of the city look terrible compared to what they always look like or compared to what they should look like. Well, in a, in a moment here, we'll talk about um, it's not just government, but what some local businesses are doing when it comes to pitching in for housing. And um, I, I, I want, however, to pick up on uh, something that I think Jane mentioned, that one of the reasons not to go into a shelter is that we still have a pandemic with us. Um, So I I thought I would uh, deliver a little virus update. Uh, This is Washington official Amber Betts telling you that the state will send someone out to do testing if you notice unusual symptoms. Discoloration of the legs, respiratory, coughing, and even some neurological signs like lack of fear of humans. So there Amber's talking about bird flu, actually. She's with the state agriculture department and avian flu is on the rise in Washington and nationwide. Not currently a threat to human health, but millions of birds have been euthanized in the Midwest. 
If you've got chickens, keep them in the coop. No free-ranging right now. You want to protect them from the wild birds migrating north now. There are eight officially infected flocks. Thurston County, Pierce, Pacific, Clallam, Spokane, Whatcom, Okanagan counties. Um, and, uh, of course, we'll talk about the other big virus. But any, were you, any questions, reactions to avian flu? Is that something any of you have been following? Okay. And we're all looking at you okay. as our science reporter. Yeah, right. Well, my time has actually been pretty consumed by following the viruses that are uh, affecting humans more than um, than our avian friends. Yes, yes. Um, we're in an interesting place with that other virus. Oh, and by the way, I should say I'm not talking about uh, monkeypox, which is on the rise in humans. Just little outbreaks, less than 100 cases in some European countries. Two suspected cases in the U.S., but... That's still that's unusual and it does affect humans and you don't want to get monkeypox. Also, I'm not talking about rabbit hemorrhagic disease, which our state veterinarian has confirmed in King County, which is highly contagious for rabbits and fatal to rabbits. But on the yes, on the covid front, we've seen this week cases continuing to go up. Seattle Public Schools reporting cases up about 14 percent. At least four Seattle Public Schools are back to requiring universal masking. Still, King County will close three testing sites, Federal Way, Tukwila, Auburn, because so many of us have switched to at-home testing. Governor Inslee says hospitals are not swamped. He's got no plans to bring back statewide mask mandates, although the vaccine mandate for the state does remain in place. Jane, any reaction or any more information that our listeners ought to know now? I think all of us are just tired. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um just walking around town, I've seen less masking than ever, which I guess makes sense. You know, we're, uh, I think, getting more comfortable with returning uh, indoors without masks. I personally am still wearing a mask indoors um, as the summer months come. That is becoming more and more uncomfortable. Um, I went to the climbing gym yesterday in a mask. I did not enjoy being very sweaty underneath that mask. However, I think, you know, with cases going up, it just feels like it is a very easy way that we can try and keep spread at bay. I think in the new world, we each have to make our own sort of uh, daily, practically risk assessment. Uh, I still wear a mask indoors like you do, Um, but I'm so excited that it's May and we're going to be able to be outside for a long period of time. And I think anything goes outside. I really do. I'm not worried about that. Yeah, it's good uh, to be in Seattle right now and not Florida, where uh, probably the coming of summertime means means more indoor gathering. That's true. Right. So we're flipped in that way. Look, long COVID, we just don't know enough about this, but people are really having a rough time with it. I read somewhere, and I mentioned this to you earlier, Bill, that um I believe NPR itself has a new mask mandate. Um, not positive about that. Mm-hmm. But I think it's like we're trying to figure out how do we live with COVID. I don't know if we're in a lull and we're going to get back in the fall to some really high number, which some folks have been talking about. We know a couple things. We know use your head. We know that being vaxxed and, and boosted probably helps a lot. Um, we do see the, the virus increasing a lot on the East Coast. I don't know if they're using air conditioning yet or not. Um, But I I had a different experience than you did with masking. Costco, which had been around, I guess, around 20 to 30 percent of people wearing masks, was much more masked yesterday. Hmm. And so people are reading the same stuff we're all reading. Right. And make make your own decision. But but make a good one. One of the things that stands out to me about the 
uh, monkeypox in particular, even though those are relatively low numbers, the thing that's, I think, surprising is that those relatively low numbers are all around the world now, in Europe, in the United States, again, relatively low, but that level of spread is really uncommon. Avian, and that's why I think we should be eyes wide open on that, not necessarily because of transmission rates, but because it's already here. There's already some level of community spread. These are happening. These infections are happening with some people who have not had a history of travel. And DJ, uh, we should let people know, first of all, it's called monkeypox, but uh, but it's generally uh, uh, harbored in rodents and that it also doesn't spread through the air, as far as I know, I'm no scientist. My understanding is that it's it's more um, uh, physical contact and not uh, droplets. Our science reporter Jane is nodding. That's a good sign. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> okay. um, I think people are saying that it is, or experts are saying that it is unlikely that uh, monkeypox could spread as quickly as COVID, um, just because it requires that closer contact, but also because the symptoms are very obvious. Um, you are generally very sick for a couple of weeks. Um, you can potentially even grow little pustules all over your body, which is pretty gross. Um, so it's pretty obvious. It's similar to, um, you know, any other kind of pox um, where there might be more obvious physical um, symptoms for you. Um, but, you know, I think DJ, you're right. It is a lot of people are keeping a close eye on this because as we understand it, it most likely is not uh, transmitted um, through aerosols, um, but you know that's what we said at the beginning of COVID as well. I think we have a heightened fear of viruses right now for good reason, and we're realizing how little we know about a lot of these viruses. Um, I know monkeypox has not been studied super extensively, and experts are just trying to be aware of how much we don't know about how much we don't know. Um, so worth keeping an eye on, hopefully will not be a second pandemic. I'm knocking on wood right now. Well, the, the scariest thing about it, I believe, is that there's no known really great treatment for it. Uh, they Some people talked about using the smallpox vaccine, I believe, for it. But otherwise, you know, it, there's so much we don't know, and there's and especially how to treat it. That That's what makes it sort of uh, frightening. And as you say, you know, it was always just on one continent. But now it's sort of moving around the globe again. I mean, Generally, actually, outbreaks it, are just a few dozen people, so it's yeah, in it's the limited. Past. It's more limited, yeah. Yeah, but I think I actually found it comforting that there's a vaccine or a vaccine that can be used, um, so that we're not starting from scratch the way that we did from COVID, at least. One of the I think realities of our new our brave new world is that in in a space of with with increased temperatures climate change, one of the things some models show is just an increase in uh, viruses like these getting into human populations and, and uh, an increase in the mutations that would allow those sorts of things. So avian flu is a thing, but it was a thing 10 years ago. Monkeypox has been around, you know, but COVID was new and AIDS, when it, HIV, when it came out was new. And when we have, you know, more energy in our closed system, you're likely to get more uh, new viruses arriving. So this is going to be in some ways our new normal. Our kids growing up are going to just have more of these um, viruses that they're going to have to deal with in the same way that our grandparents used to deal with viruses. We sort of lived in the, the we have been living in the great years of, uh, of pandemic uh, 
evasion because in virus evasion because of vaccines. And I think things are changing for the next generation because of not science, but the context around our society. But doesn't that seem crazy if you think about it, because we're supposed to be so much more uh, high level in our uh, understanding of medicine and science. So it's, it's kind of ironic that way. Indeed. That's Joni Balter, a political analyst, contributing columnist. We've got DJ Wilson here and Jane C. Who, and we're going to take a short break and uh, come to a conclusion on this week's Week in Review. Stay where you are. Thanks for tuning in to Week in Review here on KUOW Seattle. So I was asking members of our KOW Community Feedback Club what might drive their votes this fall. Lonnie wrote in, said, I'm a Democrat, but will vote for someone who will try to decrease property taxes. I can barely afford to pay my taxes because my house is suddenly worth so much. People say sell it, but where would I go? Yet I cannot afford to stay in my own house. I'm a teacher and we don't get raises as fast as these taxes are going up. And why are local home prices going up? Well, there are a lot of reasons, but one is rising wages. And Joni, you noticed that Microsoft is almost doubling its budget for employee salary increases and boosting stock awards by at least 25 percent. Yeah. So um, it's a sign of the times, you could say. But and I've written a fair amount about the competition between Microsoft and Amazon on things like philanthropy. You know, which company wears the white hat in the community? And even um, another thing that they seem to be competitive on was work from home policy. But here it is. It's about talent. Would you rather work for Amazon or Microsoft? And this salary story about Microsoft is um, is tied to, to that. Mm-hmm. Uh, I believe these companies kind of learn from each other about, about which is the best way to conduct a tech company. Uh, the example would be that Microsoft uh, set the standard for so, so many years for philanthropic presence in the community. Amazon, by contrast, for a really long time, seemed aloof, almost stingy. Uh, but now you, uh, in, in another part of this uh, trend kind of stuff, Amazon actually, it, this one year, actually did more on philanthropy than Microsoft. Yeah, that's uh, the, so, the Puget Sound Business Journal reported that, you know, they have this, they keep this list of philanthropy and that Amazon hasn't even been on the list because Amazon hasn't been releasing those numbers. But for the first time, as you say, Amazon surpassed Microsoft as Seattle's top corporate philanthropist. I'll just give you one number. Amazon gave away $96.9 million in Washington last year, and that was $23 million more than Microsoft. So I would think it would vary different years, if the, but, but we don't know because they weren't releasing the numbers. And Mm-hmm. And um, so anyway, I think this competition between these two companies, obviously, they compete at the level of all of big tech, you know, for employees, they compete for sort of stature in their own community, in the tech community. Um, but a- another time where I saw Microsoft sort of leading Amazon, so the other way, was on uh, work from home policy. And, you know, Microsoft had the, mo- you know, one of the most uh, employee oriented, flexible and Amazon at first kept trying to bring the employees back to the office, but then they now they're sort of in this in the same boat as uh, Microsoft. They're doing the same thing, keeping it very flexible. Yeah, the talent competition, um, by the way, the um, Seattle's uh, considering raising the jumpstart tax on the biggest payroll businesses. So that obviously affects Amazon a lot. 
Um, and the Seattle Chamber of Commerce leader, Rachel Smith, said, well, businesses are not necessarily opposed to new taxes. Taxes are not inherently bad. They pay for getting results and outcomes on the priorities uh, that we have as a community. But she said the city first ought to lay out a clear spending plan and consider budget cuts. Uh, DJ, we were talking about um, voters and money and, uh, you know, we've got here, here stocks have been falling, falling. The wealth of these companies is at least temporarily falling. Any thoughts on these dynamics? I think there's a, you know, we're heading into a really tricky storm uh, economically and nationally, locally, politically. If you jump ahead six months to the fall elections, and when budgets are going to be debated in council chambers, we're likely going to be on the cusp, some people think, of the next national recession. And so talking about raising taxes, even if Seattle is a laggard, we're usually 12 to 18 months behind a national recession. So I don't think Seattle is heading into a recession, but there's going to be a lot of talk about that six months from now. It's, I think the Seattle City Council would do well to tread very lightly on this uh, topic for a little while. I think it's smart to, to demonstrate uh, some frugality and, and find places to cut before you go ask for tax increases. The last thing I think anybody in, in Seattle politics or observers wanna see is a repeat of the same kind of like fights that we've had in recent years in court cases and you know two steps forward, three steps back in some ways. So. Uh, Teresa Mosqueda is really good at stakeholdering. Dan Cross is really good at stakeholdering. There are a lot of good uh, council members who, you know, will be reaching out to folks. But we, I think it's time to tread lightly. We're on the cusp, I think, of a real political backlash that we already talked about in terms of the elections. In 2023, we're going to start, good Lord. Let me just parenthetically say, this is the best time of our politics of the next like four or five years. Because real quickly, we're going to run into the midterm elections. Then we're going to have the presidential campaign start in early 2023. We're going to have inherent conflict between President Biden and a Republican Congress uh, throughout 2023. Then we're going to have all of that multi-billion dollars of money flood into our 2024 uh, presidential election. So I'd really like our council to not not go uh, chomping at the bit to pick fights uh, right now. We really need to make sure that we are, uh, I think, building sustainable policies that we're not going to keep fighting over for the next couple of years because we're going to have a lot of fights in front of us. Well, the starting point for the council is that they won't cut the budget. And if I count votes there in my head anyway, I come up with they probably have the votes to raise taxes. Totally. But, wouldn't, but wouldn't this recession and inflation, you know, who that's unsustainable for is the people who don't have much money. They're talking about progressive taxes on corporations that do have money. Yeah, and that would be great as long as it gets uh, passed and and actually implemented. But the last thing I think we want is are, are the fights and over uh, policies that end up in the courts, and then those those uh, uh, those taxes get you know um, thrown out. Sometimes in Washington State, uh, as people know, if they follow closely, we will pass taxes specifically to send it into the courts without a lot of intention of actually having these policies be held uh, for an extent or actually put in place. And that this is not the time for that. Any income tax goes to the courts with the hope of getting it overturned or overturning a constitutional precedent. So, you know, we've got money, voters are generous, but let's, I, I don't think we want to pick fights that uh, we know are going to drag on for years. 
Okay. Well, this would be the jumps. Well, there are, there are, I'm sure Seattle is considering lots of things. One is the, the existing uh, jumpstart tax on these big companies that have big payrolls and, and, and high compensation. And uh, the budget chair does say, as you suggest, that they're anticipating a $35 million gap for next year and that that's uh, probably not going to go away. Jane, any, uh, anything to add on this topic? I am just thinking about that compensation for, or the increased compensation potentially for um, those employees, which is great for them, but I do wonder how that will affect the rest of us who have less of a buffer against inflation. Indeed. Uh, here, here I, I just picked out from the Puget Sound Business Journal report a few uh, donation items that uh, Amazon donated $3 million to Seattle University, $2 million to the Pacific Science Center. $5 million to Seattle's Waterfront Park, $7.5 million to King County's East Rail Project in Bellevue, and the highest figure in this cluster, $10 million to Code.org, which I have to say I hadn't heard of. It's a STEM education uh, project. Anything else before we, uh, before we think about what's made us smile this week? Anything to add? Joni, we started on, uh, on our corporations and where the money is. Anything to add there? Well, I hope they keep um, competing with one another locally to do good in this community. Um, that's, a, that's a good competition to have in your city and region. As I say, we end the show on something that's made us hopeful. Uh, not the entire show has been hopeful yet again for the millionth week in a row. I'm keeping track. <laughs> so um, anything made you smile this week? Well, you know, I, go ahead, Johnny. I'm smiling because I decided to take up keyboard. And it's in honor of my sister, who was a master at the piano. And unfortunately, she died. So I'm doing it in her honor. And it makes makes me smile. Lovely. I'd like to hear that sometime, Joni. Not soon. Not, Not soon. soon. Fair enough. <laughs> <laughs> One thing that makes me smile is the fact that my wife has now been with me for 20 years, which is amazing. I can't believe it. And, and so I'm hopeful we'll get another 20. Uh, so thanks Thanks, wife. That's adorable that you're amazed that she'd stay with you this long. I, I get it. I get it, DJ. Jane, yeah. How about you, Jane? Congrats, DJ. Um, my yeah. husband and I are about to celebrate 10 years. Um, hope we get to 20. Mm-hmm. Um, I've been really glad to just see everything in bloom. Um, some of you might have heard that this is one of the gloomier uh, Seattle Springs that we've had. Um, and it's just been so nice to walk around the neighborhood and um, see all the lilacs and azaleas blooming. Actually, this month, Sarah, if you're on the live stream um, behind me here, just got a new leaf. Um, my orchid is blooming. Just feels like everything is coming back to life after kind of a chilly and cool spring. Yeah, it looks glossy. And my chameleons and roadies are blooming like crazy and the dogwoods coming out a little bit. I'll tell you what's not making me smile is that Johnny Cash water tower shooting Somebody shot a, uh, a bullet into a, a water tower with a mural of Johnny Cash, so it looks like he's leaking 30,000 gallons a day. And my kids listen to the show, so kids, not funny. Uh, our show is produced by Kevin Kanistat, social media and live streaming, Juan Pablo Chiquiza, Tio Popescu, and we got Catherine Banwell on the board. Thanks for listening to KUOW. We'll be back again next week. Thanks, Phil. Thanks. Thanks.